If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Every time I come to this passage of Scripture, every time I think of being in a trailer, in a trailer court one night, uh, and I was in the home of the biggest drug dealer in the community. The week before, his daughter spent the night in our home, and the word on the street was that he was driving around looking for the house where she was. It was a very troublesome situation. And just a week or so later, I'm in his home. And uh, the Bible literacy in that home was, I knew it wasn't all that high because his friend was with him. He had long, greasy hair. He looked at me and he said, you don't like my hair, do you? And I said, uh, well, I, you know, I got no problem with your hair. He goes, hey, hey, dude. Uh, Jesus had long hair. And I said, okay, well, like, how do you know that? He goes, dude, I've seen pictures. <laughs> and then I, I, I moved over to Arnie, who was the drug dealer. And I, my opening question, now Arnie was completely ignorant of Scripture, and I asked him, I said, Arnie, what would be the most difficult thing God could ever ask you to do? And without hesitation, Arnie goes, Oh, man, probably take the life of my son. And that began our study of Genesis chapter 22. So if you're there, that's where we're going to be this morning in the famous story of Abraham and Isaac. It was D.A. Carson who said, Faith in God, to be genuine, must be tested. And when it's tested, I would go on to say, uh, that is when we dis- that's when we discover that it's real or not real. And so that really is the question that's being begged here this morning. Is your faith real? Is it real? And I, the answer might be in what you do with Isaac. When your faith is, as James put it, activated by obedience... That's when you can know that your salvation is real. And that always involves a test. Now, in Genesis 22, Abraham is over 100 years old. His lifelong dream has come true. He has a son by Sarah. I mean, it's all just coming together. He's now in his teens. That is Isaac. And Abraham has been tested several times by God, and we've seen that as we've gone through. Some tests he's passed, some he has not passed. But no test compares to the one he was about to get in this passage of Scripture. In fact, in fact, he's now facing the very test of his life. So let's look at the text, Genesis 22. Here's what it says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name uh, of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We'll stop there. The story before us, clearly stated in the very first verse, is a test from God to Abraham. That's important for us to realize because when God, when Satan, Satan tempts, God tests. When Satan tempts, he does so to bring out the worst in us. When God tests us, he does so for the very opposite reason. He does it to bring out the best in us. If Abraham were an artist, this was his masterpiece. This was his Mona Lisa. And while all believers face temptations, not all face the same test. The question before us this morning is, what is your Isaac? God tells Abraham to take his son, and if you'll notice in verse 2, your only son, which is interesting because he did have another son, Ishmael, remember? With that line, Isaac is singled out from Ishmael once and for all. Ishmael is, remember we saw from Pastor Brad last week, is a picture of the law. He's a picture of Sinai. 
And with that statement, God effectively throws Ishmael under the bus. And the only way he's going to get back on that bus is, the, is if he does it the way his earthly father did, by faith. And he says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you what? Whom you love. That's the first time, the law of first mention, the very first time the word love occurs in the Bible, right here. It's a flat-out mirror of John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not what? Not perish, but have eternal life. He says, offer him up as a burnt offering. He's, this, is, this is graphic. Uh, now, if you're a guy, you know that one of the top five greatest movies of all time was Braveheart. Can I get a man? Amen. That's a great movie. It's a total guy movie. But there's a little romance in there. And, uh, but one of my friends says he, he knows it's a great movie, but he won't watch it. I said, why won't you watch it? Because that last scene when he gets stretched out, I know what they're going to do to him. Although they don't do that on the, in the movie. I said to him, I said, dude, if you, you won't uh, watch that, you better not read Genesis 22. He said, why? I said, well, because God told Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering. Now, that means a burnt offering in Bible times, and, and this is affirmed later on in law, you, you would take the animal, you first slit the throat of the animal, you effectively would kill the animal by slitting its throat. That's what it means with the word slaughter here. And then you would gut the animal. You would dismember the animal. And then you would place the animal parts on the wood and it would be completely consumed by the fire. And that is exactly what Abraham understood himself to do to his very own son. So when you think about what he was going through, Think about that. For, I, for Isaac to die horrifically, Abraham had to first die emotionally. To the gut-wrenching, mind-tormenting, and heart-crushing act of obedience that he was being called to. And it was an act of obedience. Abraham's obedience has nine different aspects to it, and I want you to see them this morning. The first one I want you to see is that his obedience was unquestioning. It's unquestioning. I mean, if Abraham argued with God, there's no record of him doing so, and the account is otherwise so detailed, it's safe to say that he didn't. He did not argue with God. There's no record of his questioning God. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul said to the detractors who he anticipated fighting with God over his, over his sovereign plan to save some and pass over others, whom, you know, the Lord, you know, his whole plan of election in Romans chapter 9, where he says in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But we do it all the time, don't we? By the way, it's not wrong to ask questions as long as you don't shake your fist at God, right? Abraham obeys God without questioning. 
I also want you to know that his obedience was not just unquestioning, but it was prompt. Verse 3 says, look at what it says, and he, ro- he gets the command to do so, and verse 3 says, he arose, so Abraham arose early in the morning. It's not like, you know, give me a week to think about this. His obedience was prompt. As we were raising our children when they were little, we used to always say, slow obedience is no obedience. When you know God has spoken, that's when you move. In the day you hear it. That's what Numbers 30 says. That's what we do. Prompt obedience. Abraham's faith is taking on a life of its own, a realness that James on the flip side of the Bible, speaks of and indeed uses as an illustration in chapter 2. So Abraham's obedience before God, as ours should be, was unquestioning, it was prompt, and it was sustained. Look again at verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. It's not like God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. It's right there. Just start walking up the hill. No, the text tells us it took him three days to get there because he lived in the area of modern-day Gaza, and he would have had to make his trek up into the area of Jerusalem Anyway, one way or another, it took him three days to get there. Three days. This was a sustained obedience. And by the way, before he got there, speaking of there, the Holy Spirit wants you and me to go there. He, the text is crying out for you and I to, if we can, in our, in our mind's eye, transport ourselves there. The Spirit of God wants us to see what Abraham is seeing. He wants us to feel what Abraham is feeling. He wants us to think what Abraham is thinking. And it tells us that as he's going along, he, he cuts the wood. Did you see that there? So with every swing of his axe, as he chopped that wood before he got to Moriah, Abraham had to be thinking, this is the wood by which I'm going to consume my son with fire. Abraham died a thousand deaths before he would ever wield that knife over his son. But when we obey God, there is is a sustaining element when our hearts are in it. I just thought of the scripture just now in in, in, uh, Romans 6, where thanks be to God that you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was given to you. Have you ever read that? I love that little parenthetical thought. You obeyed from the heart because that's, that's what will help our obedience to be sustained under pressure. It was a believing obedience. Something else was happening as he cut and gathered that wood, something in his mind, that is Abraham's, the promises given him for Isaac by God. Promises, mind you, 
that would keep him believing. And by the way, when you look at the New Testament, when the Bible talks about believing, it's, always in the pre- it's almost always in the present tense, or at least has that aspect to it. So much so that if you noticed, and did you notice, I, I think it's in verse 5, he says, stay here, he says, with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Did you notice that? He really believed that, even though he knew what he was going to have to do to his son. This is an amazing thing. Because there had never been a resurrection up until now. So somehow or another, he's actually believing this. And when your faith is tested, and it will be, there will be times where you struggle with sustaining obedience. You struggle with believing obedience. Because you've never seen heaven before. You just hear that when people who know Jesus die, that's where they go, right? Because the Bible teaches us that, right? But then you face it. You're faced with death. I can still remember all my children gathered around me under that tent, being on the other side of the committal, and my pastor who had been my mentor as well, had flown in to do the funeral for my wife, and they were just getting ready to lower the casket, and I was just crushed at the time but I'll never forget the words the simple words but the and they were not declarative they were exclamatory he said Nina will rise again and I it was like oh my goodness yes she will there was just this believing sense that just shot through me and when we obey God from the heart there's a belief that's infused and built up in the process I might add now Abraham's belief, or his obedience rather, was also pictorial. This whole thing is a picture of God the Father and God the Son. Abraham's God the Father, Isaac is God the Son. It's a beautiful picture all the way through. In fact, if you look at verse 6 here again, it says Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son. Abraham does not, by the way, he doesn't bear the burden of the branches himself, but he lays them on his son. And isn't that exactly what Father God did to the son? That's why Peter says that Jesus Christ bore in his own body our sin on that tree. That's what the Bible says. And here we have a picture. Listen, not only of the sin Jesus bore for us, but for, of the plan the Father had for Jesus. Because if you look at the end of verse six, it tells us that Abraham is carrying, look what he says, and he took in his hand the fire and the what? The fire and the what? And the knife. Those were the instruments of death. Abraham carried, Isaac carried the burden Abraham carried the instruments of death. Why do I point that out? I'll tell you why. Because that's how it was between the father and the son when Jesus died for us. Isaiah says that surely we have esteemed him to the place where he is smitten by God. Smitten by God. And it pleased God the Lord to crush him. Have you ever read that? 
The word please means to be delighted. It delighted in Father God to crush his son. That's what Isaiah, how Isaiah puts it. And here is my point. The ultimate instrument in Jesus' death was not the cross, but his father. Jesus wasn't some pawn on the chess table of history. He was a plan. He was the plan of God to save you and me. Aren't you glad? It's all pictured in this passage, in this pictorial obedience. It was also a hopeful obedience. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Again, the Holy Spirit wants us to be there. He wants us on the scene. Enter the heart of Isaac, shown here to be clueless, just simply following his dad. Enter the heart of Abraham, now breaking, I mean, here is his son saying, hey, dad, I mean, we got everything, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the, where's the lamb? And, and, and look how Abraham answers him. I, it's so precious. It's so precious. Verse 8, Abraham said, uh, God, God will provide for himself the lamb, for a burnt offering, my son. And they go up there together. God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Literally, the Lord will see to it. That's what the Hebrew means. Look, sometimes when your heart is breaking and you're in a fog and it's a Herculean effort, all you can do is just take the next step. When you're in that situation, then you have to speak to Isaac and say, God will provide. And Isaac, for most of you, is yourself. You have to speak to yourself. God will provide. And you go on. John Kelvin, contemplating on this passage, put it like this. He said, when we are in such straits, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. We pay God the highest honor when in the affairs of perplexity we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. Oh, that's so good. That is so good. We just have to acquiesce, do we not? I remember several years ago being down in Brazil working with John Leonard, helping him start a church. He had a son who had a, a, a tumor in his pituitary, and, and it was growing, and his life was on the line. And I was talking to him how he was doing. He goes, well, I talked to him. I said, well, what would you say to him? I, I told him, I said, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You die and you go to heaven. You said that to your son? Yeah. I said, hey, look, when it comes to dying, you need to die like a Christian. <laughs> And yet, and yet, if you'd have been there, you'd have thought, he meant it. There was a sense in which he was infusing hope into his son. Now, his son would go on to live, he's going to get married. His dad would get shot several times, become a quadriplegic, and he's still going on for the gospel. Why? Because he has a hope greater than anything this life can give him, right? Abraham had a hopeful obedience, and it was a submissive. There is 
It is submissive. Now we sort of switch gears. Not just Abraham, but Isaac gets involved here. It is submissive. So he gets to the place. He lines up the wood. Isaac is laid down. I mean, I don't know what you're envisioning here at this scene, but if you're thinking Isaac is this little boy, you know, he's seven or eight years old, perish the thought. The word son, take your son, your only son. The word son in the Hebrew is the same word as is used of Ishmael when he was a teenager. We know that Isaac was at least a teenager in this passage. He's a strapping young man, and you say, and Abraham's over 100. You say, well, they lived a long time in those days. He was over 100! This kid could easily have taken his dad. But there's nothing in the text but submission here. He lays his life down. Just like Jesus did, right? Nobody takes this away from me, Jesus said in John 10. I, I, I lay my life down and I will raise it up. I have that authority, right? There is a, there is a submission here. If we're going to obey God when we're tested, we have to be submissive. And again, I go back to that passage in in Romans 6.16. But God be praised that you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was given to you. That's, That's a submissive heart. And it was complete. Look again, 9 and 10. When they came to the place, he, he lays it out. He lays his son down. Verse 10, he reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. Can you see what he's seeing? Can you feel what Abraham is feeling? Do, can you think, can we possibly think what he was thinking? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Because here's, now they wouldn't, nobody in the Old Testament did, But many years later, 2,000 years later, the writer of Hebrews put it like this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offering, your offspring, be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Again, this is before a resurrection had ever taken place. It was never in his mind. He had nothing to compare it to. That is faith. A complete faith. You know what he was thinking. My Jehovah God is good for his promise. That's enough. And we complete the mission God has given to us. And finally, it was rewarded. Rewarded. And that's where Abraham's wielding the knife, and God comes out. Abraham, Abraham, that's the quickest obedience you're ever going to get there. Yeah, I'm here. Don't hurt the boy. Now I know that you fear me. That's another way of saying, now I know you're loyal to me. You're dedicated to me. I am more important than your very own son. And because of that, verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. The Hebrew, that's a Hebrew idiom that literally means I will absolutely, positively bless you. And of course he did. And I don't know how God will reward you when you obey him under trial, but he will. You have not just the promise 
of God to Abraham. You have the promise of God to you from his son Jesus who said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, obeys them, he is the one who what? He's the one who loves me. Under the gun, under pressure. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him. And I will manifest, I will show, I will disclose. There's the reward, myself to him. I don't know how God's going to do that. Trust him to do so when you obey him. So when you're tested, and you will be, first of all, obey God's commands, not your feelings. There's an old Saxon poem that goes like this. Quote, do it immediately, do it with prayer, do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. I love this next line. Leave all resultings. Do the next thing. And sometimes, by the grace of God, that's all we can do is just do the next thing. So obey God's commands, not your feelings. The Bible spends very little time on our feelings, but we live off of them, it seems like. And that's wrong. Live off the commands of God, not your feelings. Secondly, live off God, or obey, rather, and live off God's promises, not explanations. Look, if God explained everything he did, your struggle wouldn't be a test, would it? You would not need faith, and you'd experience no growth. Is that what you want? Now, I'm looking for a little dialogue here. Is that what you want? Remember old J. Vernon McGee through the Bible? He told the story one day of, of walking into the house of this mother whose son was dying, and she said, oh, pastor, pastor, pray for, the, pray for my son to live. He said, I will pray for that man, but I'm going to ask God's will to be done. I don't care about God's will. I want my son. That's how she responded to him. The kid lived. Grew up to be a derelict, a reprobate, rejected God. Live off God's promises, not explanations. Remember when Jesus showed up at Lazarus' funeral? The first words out of Martha's mouth were, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Remember that? The dreaded if. The dreaded if. And some of us live in perpetual guilt over those dreaded ifs. If I had been there. If I had, oh, if I had just visited him. You know, if I had spent more time with her, if I had spent more time with him, if I had bought her flowers once in a while, if, 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 if. You can't do anything about that. You gotta live off of God's promises, not explanations. And by the way, just because God doesn't explain to you what he's doing, doesn't mean he, just because God doesn't give you a reason of why he's doing what he's doing in your life, doesn't mean there isn't one. There, you can be sure that there is one. But he's not under obligation to explain. Otherwise, it's not a life of faith. 
So trust or live off God's promises, not his explanations. And thirdly, trust God to provide, not somebody else. Too often we run to other people for our provision. God wants to be our provider. Last year, a mother in our church died suddenly and unexpectedly. And I attempted to comfort her undone daughter who cried out to me in my office with other family around. And she cried out. She goes, but I need her. I need my mother. I need her. And it was so heart-wrenching. It tore my heart out to hear this woman. And the reason it crushed me so is not because I had such a close relationship with the daughter. I didn't. But because it literally hurled me back in time. I remember when my first wife died, it was late at night, my children were all in bed. And so I, I, I just, I don't know what compelled me, but I, about two o'clock in the morning, got back from the hospital. I walked into my daughter's room, sat on her bed, I can still remember it like it was yesterday, and waking her up and telling her that her mommy was gone. It is to this day the most pathetic sight I've ever experienced in my life as I can still hear her voice cry, oh mommy, oh mommy, I need you mommy, I need you. And she did need her mommy. But she would have to learn and would learn over time. God would provide. Jehovah Jireh would come through. Abraham didn't have Sarah. His servants were down below. He had no one. And we appreciate our friends. We appreciate the burden bearers that come into our lives, that help us, that sustain us, that hold us up. But sometimes God will put us in a place where we have to go it alone, and then you discover you're not alone. You have Jehovah Jireh. He will see you through it. And you will experience what Paul said, I, I want to experience the, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. And you'll really be able to say, and not flippantly or glibly so with Paul to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me because he is my provider. Trust God to provide, not someone else. And finally, Love God supremely, not Isaac. Isaac was a faith gift, the miracle baby, the promise fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah had built their whole future on him. But when God tests us, he, it rarely makes sense. It doesn't fit into our schemes. It never is, it's never logical. It always interrupts our plans and our dreams, and our hopes. So how do you love God supremely? Here's the answer. You give Isaac to God. That's what you do. You give Isaac to God. Who is your Isaac? My wife was a widow 
before I was ever a widower. And she was a widow for a lot longer than I was a widower. And she tells her story of one day being in the basement of their home. She had this strapping, handsome husband lifting weights down there with kids playing around him, frolicking about. And she was on the other side just watching it all. And she just was, her heart was filled with praise. And she just said to God, she said, Lord, thank you so much. You've given me so much. You've given me a wonderful husband who loves me. He has a great job so I can stay home, take care of the kids and school them and such. You've given me wonderful kids. I have so much. I'm so grateful to you. That's what you do. In the day of prosperity, you rejoice, right? But in the day of adversity, Solomon said, Consider this, God has placed the one right alongside the other. Because then her husband got sick, and then he died. And in the process, the doctors confronted my wife, not thinking she was handling things properly, and she said to him, look, my husband is a winner either way. If he, if he lives through this, he's a winner. If he dies, he's a winner. Either way, he wins. What was she doing? What was she doing? She was giving Isaac to God. That's what she was doing. And God said, okay, I'll take him. And he did. He took her. He took him, leaving her a widow. And what would she discover? She would discover exactly what you'll discover over and over again. God will provide. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the one who will see this thing, whatever you're dealing with, through. What is your Isaac? Is it your health? Is it your job that you love? Who is your Isaac? Is it your husband? Is it your wife? Is it those precious children? I'm telling you that God will call you to figuratively put Isaac under the knife if you're going to love him supremely. You've got to give Isaac to God. And if you do, and you remember the story, the Bible tells us Abraham received Isaac back as a sort of figurative resurrection. And our Lord Jesus literally rose from the dead. Amen? The one who died and rose again for you will be your Jehovah Jireh. He will provide for you. But you got to give Isaac to God. Let's pray. God, I don't know what the Isaac and in individuals' lives are that are here this morning. Some of their Isaac is they themselves, they're in love with themselves. You'll never know God until you know his love for you. If you've never trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior who died, took your burden, and rose again, you need to trust him today. But I'm speaking to everyone here through prayer, Lord, and asking you to identify the Isaacs in our lives. That or they which we must be willing to hold the proverbial knife over and die to. 
in order to find your strong provision. Right now, in the quietness of our hearts, I ask you, what is your Isaac? Who is your Isaac? Would you offer it? Would you offer them? Would you give them to God right now?